And what that looked like was this grown man just physically abusing and punching this little kid, myself. I was uh, scared straight. You know, we see that show, you know, it's, it is funny. I was scared out of my mind, and I literally detoxed my body on my own. Let me ask you a question. What do you believe about yourself? In other words, what's the narration that you are hearing in your head that says, this is who you are? Is it a positive message or a negative message? Has that belief about yourself led you to make bad choices over and over? Is it possible to change that narration, to change your path? Or are you doomed to continue making the same mistakes over and over again? It's been my experience that if nothing changes, nothing changes. Today, I have a special friend who has an incredible life change story, and I can't wait for you to hear it. I'm Eric Hutchinson, and this is the If Nothing Changes podcast. Let's get into it, shall we? So, hey, friend, it's good to see you. Why don't you introduce yourself? I'll introduce myself the way I do in Celebrate Recovery. I'm a grateful believer in Jesus Christ, struggle with drugs and alcohol and perfectionism. My name is Rodney. So, Rodney, I have been a Christian most of my life, um, over 50 years, and I can tell you that I have never, and I've been involved in church, and in fact, I was in ministry for a while, I have never heard a pastor or a minister introduce themselves the way that you just did. So uh, I know uh, that you work for the Celebrate Recovery Ministry, but what's the reason by uh, mentioning the things that uh, either you're struggling with or that you've struggled with in the past? What's what's the purpose in that? Yeah. So, you know, when we walk into this space we call recovery as we're trying to seek help and healing, one of the things that that we may and may or may not realize is that we we come in with this um, identity piece that what we struggle with is what we uh, it is our identity, and so in celebrate recovery, what we're trying to do is rewire that right out of the gate. Um, we tell people if you're not a believer, don't say you're a believer; just say you're trying to figure it out. But the point is, don't put. Um, your struggle as your identity. I am not an addict. I am a believer who struggles with addiction. And that's a big shift in the mindset so that we just get that in the right order. It's just odd to hear a pastor, a licensed minister say, hey, I struggle with drugs and alcohol. Or it's just <laughs> like, wait, wait a minute, what did you just say? And yeah. so I think that's really interesting. I think it's going to be interesting as we dig into your story. So why don't we kick that off? And why don't you tell us a little bit about your early childhood, maybe where you grew up, um, about your mom, your dad, and your siblings. So yeah. uh, why don't you get yeah. into that a little bit? Well, it's funny because I I don't feel like I really grew up anywhere. Uh, we I was born in Tacoma, Washington, uh, but um, you know throughout the course of our life, my mom had her own struggles, uh, and she's since passed on. But um, she she was what I now know uh, addicted to love and relationship. I don't know if all of them were legally married, but they were at least common law husbands. Uh, but I had ten ten stepfathers. Wow. Yeah. And so, uh, but, but just a line of brokenness. And so with that came anger, came physical, verbal, emotional abuse. And so early on in her party life, her, her own dysfunction, I was introduced to 
um, a lot of bad stuff, uh, drugs and alcohol. But she thought if as long as I was doing uh, substances in front of her, she could protect me. And so at a very young age, I think I was nine or 10 years old, I started using drugs and drinking and and just jo- joining in on the partying with her at the house, right? Wow. It was just a normal way of living. And so, but with that, the trauma that, that was um, kind of fed that addiction was the abuse, the physical, verbal, emotional abuse. And and I've still got I've still got a couple of brothers that are still stuck in that. Technically, three because I had one that was adopted out. He's a year older than me um, that I met later in life. But but the rest of them, um, one of them is coming out of that, but the other two are still very much in their addiction. And so it just that that cycle of dysfunction and and uh, brokenness and trying to. F- cope with things in unhealthy ways. And I did that for far too long. So, so let me ask you a question. I didn't realize you had 10 um, stepfathers or 10 fathers altogether. That, that was news to me. So what was it like? You mentioned physical abuse. I mean, was that a one-time thing that happened that, you know, really traumatized you or was it a consistent thing that happened? And was it one stepfather in you know, in general, or was there several stepfathers or was it just a regular thing of life? Yeah. Most of my stepfathers were abusive in some form. So, and it, it was a ongoing pattern. So most of the time, because I was technically the oldest, I didn't know I had an older brother, but I was the oldest in the house, in the home. Um, most of the time the abuse would happen because my mother was being abused and I would step into that and try to protect her. I was just a little scrawny kid, but you know, I did the best I could. And but a lot of times that would turn on me in that scenario. And so, in a in a weird way, it was relieving because at least if I knew mom wasn't getting it, I felt comfort, even if I was the one that was getting dragged through the house or you know whatever. So, so a lot of times that was the 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 indicator that would kind of cause things to just go crazy. Uh, but but then just the general interactions with my stepdads, uh, lots of interactions, lots of stories around that with abuse. <clears throat> you know, one of the characters in the Bible that I really relate to is Mephibosheth. That's a fun word to say. Uh, maybe you can go check that out and read about it. But it's a guy who had a limp and was invited to the table. And the, the table has a unique um, un, kind of a picture in my heart, and I've been able to experience healing in this, but... So my stepfather would, one of my stepfathers at the time, he would be the one to help me with my homework. And I think I was, this was mainly in my junior high, middle school, junior high years. But so he would help me. And and, and specifically, I remember it, w- it was around math. And I think that's why to this day, I kind of have this ugh about math. But but he would help me with my math, and and he would try to explain it. He was doing the best he could, but he had his own baggage he brought to the table, literally. And when I wouldn't understand what he was uh, trying to explain to me, the frustration, the anger would just build in him, right? It was like this, I picture it like a volcano. This volcano would just slowly start to erupt, and inevitably it would it would always result in the volcano erupting. And what that looked like was this grown man just physically abusing and punching this little kid, myself, 
Um, and I can still remember, it's funny how the things we remember, we remember the smell of the carpet, uh, remember the texture of the carpet. I remember the uh, even seeing blood in my hands. I, I can remember seeing the plant behind the, the chair, right? So those things kind of stick in your brain. But I can remember just being disheveled and embarrassed because, you know, how did I get in this situation again? Fumbling my way back up into my chair. And it would happen over and over again. That was a pretty re reoccurring thing. Uh, and so I always, I always tell people that that little boy, though the, the little boy matured and grew up, that emotionally that little boy stayed underneath that table. And I was stuck underneath that table. I didn't know it till later. But in, uh, I was inept emotionally. Um, anything that, um, yeah, anything that would go wrong, that little boy would just hide underneath the table. And what I love is that's what I love about the story of Mephibosheth. It, you know, Jesus didn't ask me to get cleaned up and come out from underneath the table. He came and met me underneath the table. And what's cool is, uh, like Mephibosheth, I still have a limp. Uh, but I was invited to the table, and uh, that was a big part of my own healing journey. So I think that um, that that story is just one of many that that's a picture of when we don't face the hurt, when we don't face the wounds in our life, we will stay stuck in that place. Maybe it is under the table. Uh, maybe it's um, where wherever your trauma, wherever your your pain points are. We can stay stuck in that, and it keeps us from moving forward. So as you are reliving that, and as you were talking about that, you know, I was thinking about what I had said initially in the beginning, was what, is, what was the narration in your head? What, what did all of that abuse, um, your mom's addiction, all of those things, what did that tell Rodney yeah. as a young child? What, what were the lies the enemy were feeding you at that time? I, I was believing that. Um, especially with that math, that homework situation, if I had been smarter, if I had understood the math problem, then this wouldn't happen. So somehow this was my responsibility. Now, recovery taught me that it wasn't my fault. I'm not guilty for that. Um, but, yeah, some of those lies, you're stupid, you're not enough, you're not good enough. Um, if you were smarter, things would be better, you, you know, yada, yada, yada. The, that, that old reel would play over and over and over again. And what I found was I would ultimately go do things to confirm what I was believing. And that's why the addiction side grew inside of me. And I was longing, I didn't know at the time, but I was longing for some comfort. I was longing to be loved and, and just relief. And those things... While temporary, they they don't um, they don't uh, numb. I mean, they numb them, but they they don't take the pain away. They just hide them, and ultimately, it's going to come out. As someone said, the they they ultimately get buried alive, and those yeah. lies that I was believing about myself were getting buried alive, and and I that's that became a part of my DNA. That's what I believed in who I was, the way I saw myself, God in the world, my circumstances. So was there a moral compass there somewhere? I know your mom was addicted and you started using very young as you became a teenager and almost into a young adulthood. Mm. What where did those things push you 
and you started making some decisions, did you even think, well, these are bad decisions? Or did you say, well, this is normal and this is, you know, this is what I'm going to do the rest of my life? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, we were, we were a part of churches, but to the extent of we just needed food or we need money. So that was kind of the extent. And so there were people that would come into our life in those scenarios that would drop these seeds and these hints. And I, and I would realize, okay, maybe this is wrong. Uh, but for the longest time, it was just, this was what normal life was. I mean, waking up and seeing a house full of people just passed out, you know, blacked out, that kind of thing. And, or even myself waking up as a kid, I can remember waking up as a kid with hangovers and just like, ugh, this, this is nasty. But it was kind of a joke, you know, it was kind of this, oh, you got a hangover, you know, you had a hard night last night. And I just thought it was a normal part of life. You know, this is what people do. They, they, you know, you know, have special remedies to make ourselves feel better and laugh it off. And it's like, ah, you can't hold your liquor kind of thing. But so I just thought it was a normal part of life. And as I started being introduced to different people, um, I began to realize, hey, maybe this is not what a normal, healthy life is supposed to be like. So was there a point where you said, yeah, I'm an addict? And I remember you telling a story recently about somebody confronting you and calling you an addict and you saying, no, I'm not an addict. So tell, tell that story. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it's kind of funny now to look back on it. But I remember uh, t- talking to one of my quote unquote buddies. I don't know that he was really a friend, but, but he was in my life at the time. And he and I were having this conversation, you know, he was saying, he said, Rodney, you're an addict. And, and I'm like, I'm not an addict. And and in my mind, and I believed it in the moment wholeheartedly, but I told him uh, in that scenario, I said, an addict is someone who has to go sell their things in order to get their next fix. I don't do that. I'm good, right? And literally that night, <laughs> it's, it's so funny looking back on it. But that night, I was actually taking some of my possessions. They were actually possessions that my mom left behind when she left um, because I was basically on my own now as a young teenager. And I was taking my possessions and selling them. And I remember getting back to my room with my drugs, and, and it was like a reality check. We talk about reality is just what is. Pain is what happens when we bump into reality. And my reality check happened in that moment. It was like, oh my gosh, I am an addict. I didn't know how to get out of it, but I, that was when I first kind of had that realization that maybe I'm in trouble. So you had that realization, and usually when I hear recovery stories, at some point someone says, I finally reached my bottom, mm-hmm. and I started looking up and realizing I had a problem, I needed to do something different. And so where was that turning point for you? Where did that start to happen for you? Yeah, mine was a little bit weird because, you know, this guy that was a drug dealer, he was, um, he was, you know, selling things. And one particular time he went into, he got a VCR and a VCR is like an old ancient uh, realm now, but it's, but he he bought this VC or he stole this VCR and to sell it to get drugs, and um, somebody saw us walking across a parking lot with him holding this VCR, and I was with him, and so uh, the police couldn't find him, but they found me and they arrested me, 
and I'm just a young teenager, and I'd re- I'd watched enough television, even had enough sense to know you just don't rat out your buddies, <laughs> and and so he took me into the interrogation room, and he was really nice. I mean, just real cool and calm, and we were kind of laughing, and you know, tell me this, and what about this, and I was just kind of real relaxed, and and then I remember him just turning on a dime. He just went from Mr. Nice Cop to very, very firm and scary. And he'd caught me in my lies because I was trying to cover up for my buddy. And and I just spilled my guts. I mean, I spilled them and, and just said, this is what really happened and told him the whole scenario, how he got the VCR, that kind of thing. And then I remember he was driving me back, and I, I can still see the road. I can still see the side of his head in the police car when he was talking to me. And I told him, I said, uh, actually, he told me he first, he, he said, he said, the best advice I could give you is find a way out of here. Because uh, I think he knew and I knew that I was in trouble because once this guy found out, um, I was my, I was going to be in harm's way. And so, so I remember just fear being a big motivator for me. And one of the guys that I used to actually take to the ATM, it's a neat part of my story, kind of a heart wrenching, but the, this guy that I used to take to the ATM, he, he approached me after that and he could see I was consumed with fear. And he told me, he said, I don't know why I'm doing this, but I want to buy you a plane ticket to get you out of here to get back with your mom. And I'm just like, I'm a young teenager. I'm just a punk. And I was just kind of shell-shocked. But but I remember that he got me a, a ticket and um, and flew me out of there. I went back to where my mom was living and uh, with her new husband and who was a shingler, a roofer. And, uh, and I was uh, scared straight. You know, we see that show, you know, it's, but it's funny. I was scared out of my mind and I literally detoxed my body on my own, uh, as a kid in my room. Uh, that's when I stopped using drugs. Now drinking, I still picked up and I was still drinking, but, but, uh, the drugs went away at that point. So, so I don't know where Mr. Taylor comes in to all of this. And so I'm going to let you, um, introduce him and yeah. how that happened. So you got off, off the plane and I'm assuming you found your mom. Are you living with your mom? How, yeah. how did Mr. Taylor come into all of that? Yeah. So this stepdad was a shingler and he would literally go from town to town. So we wouldn't, we didn't live anywhere very long and we ended up in Oklahoma and I had started going back to school um, to try to get back to some normalcy because I was a school dropout, of course, and and I I was shingling houses with my stepdad and and uh, in the evenings and and going to school, and the work dried up, and then my mom I remember coming home and we lived in what this HUD housing was real real cheap. I, I think rent was like twenty nine bucks a month. It was it was really really cheap back then. Um. But I remember um, when I got home, she said, "Hey, we're gonna we're gonna have to move again because the work's dried up." And and I told my mom, uh, "Mom, I really wanna I want to stay here." Um, I think I was eighteen at the time, and she agreed to it. But I remember, so I stayed in that house, and uh, as far as the government was concerned, my mom was living in the house. She was paying the rent, not me. 
So I was working part-time for this school teacher, Mr. Taylor, and I was paying my rent and going to school, trying to have some kind of normalcy, whatever that is. But, but then I got behind on my electric bill, and so that was a big deal. So they evicted my mom. They really evicted me, but they, they, they just put a notice on the door. And so I was working for Mr. Taylor, and he was my music teacher as well in school. He's the one that introduced me to music. Uh, but I remember getting on my, I had a little moped and I got on my moped and I drove uh, to his house. And I, at this point, he didn't even know I lived by myself. I, I mean, to the world, I still had a mom at home. And, and I told him, Mr. Taylor, I called him T. I said, T, you don't know this, but I've been living by myself and basically living on saltines and peanut butter. And, um, but I've been evicted. I don't have a home anymore. I need help. Can you let me stay with you just for a little bit? I didn't know. I I didn't know what what I would do, but I was like, just for a little bit, whatever that is. And his initial response was, Rodney, me and my wife are getting ready to retire. I don't know if we can take in a teenager. And uh, and I said that's fine. You know, it's kind of short. And I said that's fine. I'll figure it out. And I got on my moped. And I literally cried all the way back to my place. I didn't know what I was going to do. But I remember going into my house, and I had a, I had a, a cat. Um, my cat even left me early on when my mom left because I think because I couldn't feed her, and she was depressed because everybody was gone. But So I have this empty house. I've got a mattress on the floor. I've got this little shelf with you know peanut butter and stuff, and I'm throwing whatever clothes I have in my backpack. I have no idea where I'm going, but I'm I'm packing like I'm going somewhere. <laughs> and I I look out the front window and there is uh, he had this brown pickup. T is pulling into my driveway. I'm like, what's he doing here? And so I walk out the front door and he's already got my moped in his hands. He's putting it in the back of his truck. And I was like, what are you doing? And he said, he said, run it. I think he called me Rod at that time. He said, Rod, I talked to Barb. That's his wife. He said, you're coming home with me. I said, you're, we're going to let you stay with us for a while, but you have to go to church. We go to church every Sunday. He, he and his wife, he played piano at the church, little First Baptist Church there in Marlowe. And she sang in the choir, and they said, you have to go to church in Sunday school. It's like, okay, whatever, as long as I got a place to live. <laughs> And it was there, um, which I'm just so grateful for them for taking a chance on this punk kid. But, but it was there that um, I started getting involved in church. And I went on a, it was called a Disciple Now retreat, uh, which is a, for Baptist, you know, camp kind of thing. And I honestly went for the girls. <laughs> but but it, when I went, um, God just got a hold of me on that trip. And I received Christ, and and I, I remember coming back, and they had a they asked a couple kids to share uh, in church Sunday morning, and I got up and I blubbered like a baby, talking about my experience and just talking about how God had gotten a hold of me, and and it was that point that my life started turning. Um, Mr. Taylor T started talking to me about. It. What if you went to college? You know, have you ever thought about going to college? And it's like, ah, I never thought about that. And then he started really helping me to understand that maybe I had a gift of singing. 
ended up getting scholarships to a local college. And I'm just like, this is crazy. I mean, I never thought I'd go to college, let alone get a scholarship. Well, thank you for sharing all of that. Um, so I know that we're skipping past probably a whole chapter here, <laughs> but somewhere along the line in college, you met your future yeah. wife, which is your current wife now, yeah. but you met Carol. Um, describe that. I mean, yeah. uh, you met her, I guess, in college, and, and uh, where did where did that lead you? Yeah, she was a scholarship student as well. And, it, you know, it sounds so cliche, but it was literally a love at first sight. I mean, I, I still remember walking into the, the hall and the stairs go down and the grand piano was down at the bottom and she was standing around the piano with two other show choir folks and they were singing. I was late, of course. And um, and there was something, there was just a chemistry there. And uh, yeah, we, we met and we hit it off. I think it was two months later we were engaged. Wow. Yeah. yeah. It crazy and people like oh man and and you can imagine how her parents what they thought of that but that's a whole nother story but um but then we were married another six months later um yeah and and it no doubt god brought us together for a purpose but i brought so much dysfunction into that relationship i was what i would classify now as a dry drunk i wasn't using um but I didn't have recovery. I was sober, but I wasn't in recovery. You know, you had an incredibly tough childhood and, and adolescence, and that baggage you brought into that marriage. Yeah. Uh, you had told a story one time that I'll never forget, um, and I'd like for you to kind of dig into that a little bit. You came home, and there was a note left for mm-hmm. you. So tell us about that. Yeah. I was working crazy hours. I'd shifted my addiction to my work. Anytime there was conflict, I mean, I'd had a whole line of people who hurt me and left me. So any kind of conflict in the marriage was an indicator saying, um, this is going to be one more person that is going to hurt me and leave me. And so, so me and my wife in conflict, it just didn't go really well. And so I would shut down my emotions. I would, I would kind of go into my dark cave and, and my wife just became emotionally bankrupt. And, and yeah, one time I was on a business trip and I came home and the house was pretty much empty and there was a note to just saying, I'm done. I'm emotionally spent. And that really spun me out. I mean, I was desperate. I was like, I, I was caught off guard, number one. Now looking back, I knew there was indicators if, if, I was, if my eyes were open, but I was in such denial that I didn't realize that that my wife was hurting as much as she was. And so so that note was kind of the catalyst to go, okay, something's broken here. And she was going to divorce me. I mean, this was two years in. And by the grace of God, he brought us back together. And, and we did do some counseling. But Celebrate Recovery is where we both uh, were able to, to kind of dig into the hurt and I was able to start going back to my family of origin and understanding what what it is, what were the good reasons why I was doing what I was doing. And um, so we kind of say this with joy. I mean, we're, we're satisfied customers now being in recovery together, but Celebrate Recovery is really what saved our marriage. So I'm going to fast forward now. Um, 
obviously, because you guys didn't get divorced, you right. worked through some of those issues. But whenever you took the job at Celebrate Recovery, mm-hmm. um, I know I've heard you talk about your first step study yeah. and digging into all of that. How was the processing of all of that? And how did you come to hear a different narration in your head? What do you believe about yourself now? Yeah. As I faced the hurt and began to take in these new truths, it turned to new healthy practices. And so those new healthy truths is I I am a child of the king. I can make mistakes and not be a failure. Um, That I can own my story and not make it my identity. And too often we have the, the hurt right in front of us and we have to zoom out and say, this is a part of my story. It's not my whole story. And God's still writing the rest of my story. And so that recovery process, uh, going through the step study group and inviting men, uh, and you've heard me say this, Eric, I mean, the having men in my life was a miracle because men were my abusers. And now I have so many guys like you in my life, a small army uh, that I can, I mean, I look forward to seeing them on Friday night. You know, they're my brothers but those new healthy truths now are what drive me to healthy practices, which ultimately affects my relationships around me. Oh, thank you so much, Rodney. And what an incredible story. What an incredible God miracle that yeah. has happened in your life. So as we wrap things up a little bit, what would you tell the person who is listening about the negative narration and the lies that they are hearing from the enemy is change possible. And if so, what is the first step? Yeah, it's interesting. I think there's a word that I've learned to just kind of take in and it's this word acceptance. I need to accept and be honest about where I am. What are the lies that I'm believing invite somebody else into that so that they can help discern is that truth or is that a lie? That's value of relationship saying, hey, I think that's a lie. But to accept where I am, to accept I need help, to accept just with the possibility that there could be a father that loves me enough that would want to meet me in that, and to accept the, the process as I turn my life and my will over to his care and control. Uh, change is possible, but I think the thing is just making sure our, our expectations are in the right frame, that this isn't a quick fix. And sometimes he does take things away quickly, uh, but sometimes the process, you know, my mindset is sometimes I think, you know, God, God's not, he doesn't want to just make us feel better. He wants to actually grow us and change us. And so sometimes that takes time. And the maturing process, although I wish it wasn't that way, it takes time. We have to we have to experience it, walking through it. And that experience is going to be what will actually get us on the other side. It's experiencing day by day, Lord, I need you again today. I need your help. And as he begins to, we invite him in and his Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit starts to work in and through that, then it begins to rewire our brain and ultimately leads to that change. But it's a process. I just encourage you to trust the process. Go slow, invite God and other people into that, and accept where you are and accept Him as your source of power as you move forward. Excellent. So if we've got listeners that have hurts, habits, or hang-ups, which you know (laughs) that we all do, but if you need help, if you're a listener and you need help, 
how can a listener reach out to you, because this is your job, uh, yeah. reach out to you and to Celebrate Recovery Ministries. And I know you've got a podcast, and you're welcome to plug that as well. It's called Hope in Recovery. You can search for that on any of the mainline podcast services. You can search for Hope in Recovery and incredible podcasts. But how can they reach out to you or to Celebrate Recovery Ministries? Yeah. So here locally in northwest Arkansas, um, fellowshipcr.org, go, go to that. Uh, website. It'll give you the local. But if you are listening from another country or uh, another state for that matter, um, just go to celebraterecovery.com forward slash CR groups, and you can literally type in your zip code and find a group around uh, around you, nearest to you. But yeah, just show up and you don't have to, no expectations, just walk in with a curious posture and watch God do his work as you let him and, and other people into that. Thanks so much, Rodney. Hey, if you are listening today and you have had abuse in your past, and that abuse is telling you that you are a loser, a failure, and that there is no hope, that's a lie. There is hope in Jesus Christ. There is hope in our higher power. If you are stuck in addiction and the enemy is telling you that there is no way out, and that you might as well just continue down this path because it is your destiny. That is also a lie, and there is freedom in recovery. There is hope in recovery. Maybe you are married and there is dysfunction in your marriage. I've been there. Maybe there are lies that need to be exposed. The only way that things are ever going to change is to stop listening to those lies from the enemy and start making decisions based on truth. I love the words from Zach Williams' song, Chain Breaker. It says, if you've been walking the same old road for miles and miles, if you've been hearing that same old voice telling you the same old lies, if you're trying to fill the same old holes inside, there is a better life. Hey, thanks for listening. Remember, if nothing changes, nothing changes. See you next time.